Happy Halloween, Pulse Check listeners. Did you know that not so long ago, real live witches lived among us? Or at least that's what male doctors called the women who derived therapeutics from plants to treat common ailments like heart disease and inflammation. Some of their ingredients are still used in modern medicine. This is Pulse Check. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. Here's what I'm following this week. I'm tracking more of the public comments coming in as the Reagan Udall Foundation reviews the FDA's tobacco program. Last week, the expert panel listened to hours of testimony from industry executives and legal and public health experts. These witnesses explained what they think the Center for Tobacco Products can do better procedurally. Public comments are continuing to roll in, including some from individuals who say they currently work at FDA. These individuals say they're really concerned with the amount of political pressure applied to the agency, making it impossible for them to follow the science as they review all of these tobacco product applications. This is super important because the tobacco program at FDA is one of the newest centers, and it's come under a lot of public and lawmakers' scrutiny for its regulation, or lack thereof, of e-cigarettes in particular. And with the election a week away, it appears that abortion will be a key issue for New Jersey voters, as Politico's Daniel Hahn reports. The state's 11th district has a heated House seat race between two-term incumbent Democratic Representative Mikey Sherrill running against Republican Paul DeGroote, who says he's pro-choice but supports the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I'm here with my colleague Megan Wilson, who covers lobbying in the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry. She's been working on an investigation into Bio, one of the largest biopharmaceutical industry groups, and the shakeup that happened when CEO Michelle Murray Heath stepped down after a clashing with its board. First off, Megan, can you tell me more about what this clash was about? Yeah, there was a number of factors that sources have told me led to her ultimately stepping down. But one of the key elements was repeated clashes with the board over how aggressive or outspoken to be on issues like abortion following the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade or, you know, how biopharmaceutical companies and biotech uh, companies across different industries should respond to Russia invading Ukraine and and, and how sweeping uh, their statement should be on that. Things that aren't necessarily squarely in the pharmaceutical advocacy agenda. Well, yeah, that was going to be my next question is like, let's take a step back for a minute and talk about what, you know, bio is is typically doing. Can you just sort of walk me through layman's terms, what we would expect to see them doing on a Tuesday, for example? <laughs> sure. So, you know, trade groups, uh, industry groups in Washington represent lots of members and, and, you know, have a consensus for the industry in terms of lobbying priorities and, you know, especially which is especially important for the members of, you know, bio because there's a thousand members. You've got big giants like, you know, Bayer and and Pfizer, but you also have tiny companies that don't even have a product yet. They're pre-market is what they call them. And then there's ones in the middle as well. But, you know, pharma is a giant trade association, which which only has 33 members. It, it represents the biggest ones. But bio plays an important role because it represents sort of the smaller and mid-sized companies as well and gives them a voice. But bio is a, a complicated organization and trade association because it not only represents biopharmaceutical companies, but it represents uh, companies that make biotech products across, you know, the climate space, across agriculture. So there's a lot of interests that you have to sort of corral and and uh, bring together to, to, to gain consensus. And, and it's difficult. 
One of the things that I was really surprised about in your reporting was that it seemed like when it comes to these more social issues, these issues that are outside of the biopharmaceutical industry's usual day-to-day interests, was that all of this extra interest was really generated by a small handful of really influential members of the 120-person board. Tell me about that and maybe tell me a little bit more about why it was a problem that she didn't want to follow what this small influential group wanted her to do. Yeah, it's reporting the story was tough because, you know, it's a sensitive personnel issue. And quite frankly, folks are uh, afraid of retaliation. But, you know, I can say that there are a couple uh, very outspoken CEOs on a, a smaller part of the 120 person board uh, that that really want to drive home and want bio to be more forward looking on some of these issues. See, Michelle McMurray Heath took over the organization after a former Republican congressman named Jim Greenwood ran it for 15 years. And so you have a shift from a, you know, a former Republican congressman to, quite frankly, someone uh, who was at one time on the short list to, to lead the FDA during the, the Biden administration. And I think that there was a hope that, you know, she would be a change agent and a a few folks on the board really wanted her to be sort of a figure and have the association be more forward-leaning on some of these things. But as I mentioned, because there are a thousand members at Bio, it's hard to gain consensus on, you know, some of these issues and making sweeping statements on on some of these issues. And especially in the political environment that we're in, coming out and taking a decisive and sweeping stance can be really challenging and and even make, you know, your advocacy posture even tougher. So at this point, Michelle McMurray Heath has left bio and it's right at this crucial time where we're just ahead of election season. Dems are having all these big plans about drug pricing reform. What is the uncertainty at bio without without clear leadership? What does that do to them in this crucial political time? So Bio announced that uh, Michelle McMurray Heath was staying on as a as an advisor, but it's not clear what that means uh, within the organization. Um, however, as you mentioned, you know Democrats passed the most sweeping uh, drug pricing policies in decades, uh, allowing Medicare to to negotiate drug prices and. The Biden administration is about to start implementing and shaping that law and shaping how uh, negotiation is going to work. And, you know, bio is filled with, you know, professionals who know how to do their job. But as you're ushering in a new Congress, as you're working on these things, having someone who isn't a permanent, you know, figurehead in terms of like image can be, you know, rough, especially as you're trying to make, especially as you're trying to make new connections and, you know, quite frankly, continue you know, current ones. Looking forward to reading more. And thanks for stopping by on the podcast today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hi, how are you? This is Chris Hammond. I'm 36 years old and I am currently a COVID long hauler. I'm going to let him take it from here. I will do my best to be succinct, and I would say you have the liberty to edit away as you see fit to condense 
two and a half years of a story into a small sample few sound bites is probably going to be difficult but i'll lay it all out there and take what you need <laughs> honestly so essentially for me and in, in my particular case my biggest issue is lung function cognitive issues and fatigue at this point the pulmonary impact is probably by far the most limiting my lungs are functioning at around 40 to 30 percent of their full capacity in the radiology imaging they're actually shrinking so that's that's a newer development but it's something that is you know it's scary i'm working with the post-acute covid team at johns hopkins right now about six to seven specialists they call themselves the packed team the post-acute covid team I've referenced them as like the Avengers <laughs> and they're all working together. Physical issues are things that I think you can wrap your head around more or less. Oh, I am having trouble breathing. I should stop what I'm doing. Not being able to trust what your mind is telling you. That's that's scary. I've had conversations with my wife and she's like, you know, honey, that's the third time that you've asked me that today and for me it's the first time um so you always wonder what have you forgotten you know what what are you missing out on that you're not remembering the best way they described it was because there's so much fault running through your body your mind has to dedicate more of its computing power to almost running like self-diagnostic checks are you taking enough breaths? What's your heart rate? What's your blood pressure? You know, really focusing on how is your body doing? So you might be actively in a conversation, but you're, you think you're fully paying attention, but you're only getting so much of your computing power now allocated towards having that conversation. You know, you might remember the first five minutes of that conversation, but then the last 10 is, it's gone. Um, so the you know the hope is that you know using Ritalin, which they use for Alzheimer's patients, will help increase your you know speed of processing to help gather more data. I feel like if this was a storm that had passed through and you know laid waste to you know part of the country, we'd have. A request for funding, it would be granted. We'd have a bunch of photo ops. Everyone would be shaking hands and smiling, and that would be all over the news. And we'd feel like we took care of our own, and you know, America did the right thing. But I feel as though because we're a product of what essentially was a divisive virus, honestly, it still divides us currently, is that it's far harder to get that bipartisan agreement to help those in need. It's not something I think is easily passed because it wasn't agreed on in the first place. A silver lining of the bright point of this has been I've gotten to spend more time with my daughter and my wife. When I was working so many hours, I missed a lot. Um, I don't think I realized how much I missed until now I pick her up from school and we talk in the car and you know 
listen to her, learn from her, and for her to experience this with me, it's been hard. Just the other day, I had a very rough day. She saw me walking in from outside and, and you know, taking small steps, and it took me forever to get in the house. She goes to the refrigerator, gets her snacks out herself, gets her little stool, makes herself her after-school snack, clean the whole kitchen, and then, you know, rearrange the living room. It's like, honey, what are you doing? She goes, Dad, I can tell you're having a bad day, and I didn't want you to have to worry about any of this. She's six and a half. That's why you wake up and you fight every day. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ahmet is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. We have Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.